12-string guitar isn't actually all that different from a 6-string guitar, each string is just strung twice which gives it its distinct sound. You finger notes and chords the same way and approach the fretboard the same way too, the biggest difference is how long it takes to tune it. Welcome to Strong Songs, a podcast about music. I'm your host, Kirk Hamilton, and I am so excited for a brand new season talking about 12-string guitars, 6-string guitars, 5- and 4-string bass guitars, and, you know, other instruments, too. This is the sixth season of Strong Songs, which is kind of incredible to me. I've been making this show this whole time with nothing but direct listener support. Your support really does make this whole thing possible, so I hope you'll consider going to the Patreon or donation links in the show notes and chipping in. On this season premiere, we've got a widely requested pop classic that dares to go big, so big that it requires two of almost every instrument just to begin to contain it. It was a ton of fun to take it apart, and I'm excited to put it together again, so let's grab the talking drum, double up the bass, and get after it. Some songs are small and focused. They tell a specific story about a certain character or experience, and through that specificity, they allow the listener to truly understand that single experience and transpose it outward and onto their own life or experiences in a sort of expansive translation. Other songs are big. They're so big that it's hard to even talk about what they're really about. They're so big that they can hold an endless number of different interpretations. They can mean something different to each individual listener. The song that I'm going to be talking about today on our season six premiere definitely falls into that second category. It is a huge song in more ways than one, a layered, dense arrangement filled with overlapping parts and sympathetic reverberations, all in the service of a broad, near universal story of a lost soul seeking ascension, seeking connection, seeking Seeking a home. In your eyes, the light, the heat, I am complete. On this episode, I am so excited to finally talk about Peter Gabriel and his 1986 hit, In Your Eyes. There is so much to talk about with this song, it's even more incredible than I realized. So yeah, let's waste no more time and get right into it. Peter Gabriel, an English singer-songwriter, first became known through his work as lead singer and co-founder of the rock band Genesis. He left that group in 1975, putting the vocal chair in the hands of drummer Phil Collins, and Gabriel subsequently struck out on a solo career. His music was great from the start, but he wasn't an immediate superstar. He was pretty experimental. He made some pretty strange stuff with those early records. It's really cool stuff. It's just not all that commercial. I'll tell you 
In Your Eyes is from his 1986 album So, which is his fifth studio album after leaving Genesis. It's interesting listening to So up against those earlier albums, each of which is self-titled. They're all given numerical designations, Peter Gabriel 1, Peter Gabriel 2. That's how you tell them apart, along with a single word subtitle, Car, Scratch, Melt. All of his albums are like that, and So continues that trend. It's definitely a more commercial sound on this record, and that's borne out by the success of the album and the success of several singles off of it. First and foremost is Sledgehammer, a killer tune that I talked about a bit last season in a Q&A episode. That was a big hit stateside as well. That was probably the first time I ever heard Peter Gabriel as a kid. I came back to it as an adult and really just came to appreciate a lot of things about it. It is, like a lot of Gabriel's songs, more unusual of a song than I initially gave it credit for. It's got a kind of strange chord progression. I got into it on that Q&A episode. Anyways, Sledgehammer was almost the song that I talked about for my Peter Gabriel episode. It would have been a great episode. In the end, I decided to go with something different. But there are a bunch of great songs on So, each of which could have gotten their own episode. There's Don't Give Up, which was a killer duet he recorded with Kate. Bush. Don't give up. Please don't give up. Got to walk out of here. And just to place this in time, this was a year after Bush had released Hounds of Love, her breakthrough album that featured Running Up That Hill, among other songs, and on which she was experimenting with some of the same electronic musical instruments that Gabriel was experimenting with on So. There's Big Time, one of my personal favorite Gabriel songs with a really great music video. And then, of course, there's In Your Eyes. In your eyes, the light, the heat. I am complete. See the doorway. In Your Eyes is perhaps Gabriel's most famous song, thanks in large part to its role in the Cameron Crowe film Say Anything, in which John Cusack's lovelorn character Lloyd Dobler famously stands outside his crush's window, holding up a boombox as it blasts the song. Gabriel's words presumably summarizing the huge feelings that this teenage kid can't quite express for himself. It's a remarkable scene. Crow has a real sense for music, of course, and the scene itself has no dialogue. Dobler really lets Gabriel's words speak for themselves, and as a result, the scene is a real showcase for the song. You can feel that longing in the lyrics, and you can see it on John Cusack's shockingly young face. Say Anything is a pretty unusual movie, actually. I hadn't seen it for a while, and I remembered it being odder than I had thought it would be even the first time that I saw it. But this scene is great. It's a classic for a reason. But of course, the song stands on its own, separate from any cinematic placement, and live performances of it double down on many of the elements that make the studio version remarkable. So yeah, let's get into it. I don't like to see so much pain 
In Your Eyes was written by Peter Gabriel, working closely in collaboration with two other very important musicians to flesh it out after he wrote it. First is his longtime guitarist, David Rhodes, and the second is the album's producer, Daniel Lenoir, himself a legendary producer who's worked with all kinds of incredible artists over the years. The track also features a number of incredible studio musicians who played on a bunch of albums in the 1980s. The great Manu Kache played drums and percussion. Jerry Moroda also played drums. Master bassist Tony Levin played bass, as well as Larry Klein. I do think there are two bass parts on some parts of this song anyways. And the outro features a vocal performance from a remarkable guest, the Senegalese singer Yusu Ndor, whose presence underlines the strong West African influence that Gabriel was demonstrating in his music at the time, and really that has remained an influence on his music over the years. That's at the very end of the song, though. Let's hit the rewind button for now and go back to the very start and get familiar with some of the sounds that define In Your Eyes from the beginning. This intro is relatively stripped down compared to what the song eventually becomes, but it's still pretty layered. It's by no means simple. It starts with just keys, synths, and percussion before the drums enter, which you just heard. That's followed by Gabriel's striking vocal entrance on a single word. So like I said, there's a lot going on, even just in the intro and the opening verse, even though this song becomes so much more complex and layered by the time it hits the pre-chorus and the chorus. So listen back to just those opening bars and see how many distinct parts you can pick out. Let's start with the harmony and then we can get a little bit more into the groove because both are interesting and both are a big part of what makes this song sound the way that it does. So harmonically speaking, this song moves through a few different key centers. That's something Gabriel liked to do on a lot of his songs. This verse is in the key of D, basically, in the key of D major. It kind of bounces back and forth between B minor, which is the first chord, and G major, which is the second chord it spends a while on. And it uses D major as a kind of pivot point in between those two chords. So it starts on a B minor chord, then it passes through D and lands on G, then it passes through D again and goes back to B minor. Now, as for the specific sounds Gabriel is getting, I can't say for sure each specific instrument that was used on this tune. I know that Gabriel was fond of the Fairlight CMI sampler, which Kate Bush was also using. I've talked about that a bunch of times recently on the show. It's a super cool device. I'm not sure exactly what he was using it on, though. I think he might have sampled his voice a little bit later, but I know he used it on this track. He also liked the Prophet synthesizer. I used a Prophet for some of these sounds in the recreation that I built. And in addition to Peter Gabriel, the pianist Richard T. He also has a credit on this. So there are these kind of layered electric piano parts going on that were kind of a trick to try to recreate. I didn't get too down in the weeds trying to do every single hit because there are multiple parts and they kind of stagger and bounce off of one another in some ways that just are almost impossible to recreate unless you get truly scientific with it. 
It's pretty simple here at the beginning, and you can hear everything. It just gets a lot more complicated once the tune gets cooking. So here at the start, I just use Arturia's Acoustic Lab to kind of build a combination electric piano, acoustic piano sound that was a little bit close to what Gabriel is doing, and I think that'll suffice for my recreation. So that's what's on top. It's a hybrid acoustic piano and electric piano sample. And then under that, to capture that kind of overdubbed, layered, staggered sound, I recorded a second electric piano part that's just a little bit darker, and I played the part just a little differently. Maybe this is Richard T's part, just to convey that stacked sound. Put a bunch of digital reverb on this one, too. So you can hear there's just a few extra notes in that second part. Let's put those together and you'll get something that's just a little bit fatter and a little bit richer than a single keyboard part would be on its own. That second part just adds a little bit of richness. So that's layer one, the keys. Layer two is the synths, which are playing what's generally known as pads. When you're talking about synths, a lot of times you're using synths to play pads. Those are long, drawn-out notes that sit behind the more active parts in the arrangement and the mix. They add atmosphere and harmonic texture. I used a Prophet 5 for this one, or a recreation of a Prophet 5, and it makes this nice kind of vocal sound. I've always thought that kind of synth sounds a little like Kermit the Frog, like... Kermit, Kermit the Frog Pad? Let's call it the Lily Pad. In my recreation, the Lily Pad is just kind of sitting on a D, which is common to all three of those chords, B minor, G major, and D major, and it really ties the whole thing together. Here, I'll start with just the keyboard part, and then I'll layer in the synth, and check out what a big difference it makes, despite just being a single note. Here we go. This is just the keys to start. And now let's layer in the synth on a single note on that D. You hear how different that sounds? Now listen for the same thing in the recording itself. So that brings us to the other prominent element that you can hear, the percussion, which is such an important part of In Your Eyes. That groove, the beating heart of this heartfelt song comes from the percussion, played so beautifully by Manu Kache. The primary drum, which you can hear hard pan to the left and the right here and throughout the recording, is the West African talking drum, which is a drum played by a variety of different peoples of West Africa, particularly in Senegal and Gambia, both of which feature prominently in the styles of the West African music that Western artists like Peter Gabriel started incorporating into pop music in the 80s. The talking drum comes in a variety of shapes and sizes, but it basically allows the player to manipulate the drum's pitch by applying pressure to the body while hitting it with a mallet, sort of like what an orchestral percussionist might do with a tunable timpani. This is a talking drum demonstration that I found on YouTube. It's being performed by the Ghanaian-American musician Kwame Ansa Brew at Frostburg State University in 2008. It's worth checking out the video just to get a sense of how the instrument works. 
I also get the sense that Ansabru is a pretty amazing guy. So I'll link that video in the show notes. For my recreation, I do not own a talking drum, unfortunately, nor do I have a very good sample library for one. So I did my best with some other similar-ish sounding drum samples that I did have just to capture the general pulse of the song. But there is no substitute for the way the original sounds. There's no real way to recreate it, particularly the way that Kache played those drums. Now there is another percussion instrument that's missing from the recreation so far. It's a tiny but mighty instrument that I've talked about many times in the past. The humble triangle, a pingy, tingy bit of metal hand percussion that, used correctly, can cut straight through a mix and completely redefine a song's pulse. Listen to the original recording and see if you can hear that triangle. It's hard to miss once you know to listen for it. Along with the triangle, I'm hearing a very slight cymbal hit from the drum set, which just emphasizes that lifted triangle groove. So when I combine those drums that are panned left and right with the triangle and that cymbal, adding that lifted element to it, you get a pretty different and nicely sparkly groove. The final percussion part to add is that big old thump, this hit on the downbeat. It sounds like a floor tom, maybe a kick drum, maybe a talking drum. It's a bunch of low drum hits all together on the downbeat every other bar, just a big old boom on one. So that's all of the percussion. Of course, that leaves the drum set, which comes in with a pretty killer fill and plays a pretty straightforward four-on-the-floor kick drum hi-hat pattern through the verse. Manu Kache's drum set playing on this tune is great, and the often chaotic interplay between the drum set and the other percussion is a crucial part of this song's heartbeat. There's a lot of musical redundancy in In Your Eyes. The percussion and the drum set are kind of bouncing around off of one another. All of those overdubbed keyboards, even the fact that there are two different bass lines, everything is kind of happening twice, which adds this sort of reverberant, bouncy quality to the recording, and it makes it sound really big. Here the drums are pretty simple though. It's just a steady four on the floor thump in the kick drum, thump, thump, thump on the downbeats with a steady sizzle of eighth notes on the hi-hat. And that's it. Those are the core instrumental elements of the intro to this song. So let's listen back to my recreation of all of that and keep your ears peeled for everything I just talked about. The layered, rich electric piano bouncing back and forth between B minor and G major. That synth lily pad holding a D and tying all that harmonic information into a broader picture. The left and right pan percussion lilting along with that pingy triangle holding the whole thing together. That powerful low drum hit on the opening downbeats followed by the drum set's entrance with that steady four on the floor groove all setting up the vocals ears on here we go
Even before Gabriel has brought out his strongest musical asset, his incredible voice, the song already sounds like nothing else. So then, of course, it's time for him to sing. I get so lost sometimes. Love, I get so lost sometimes. Days pass and this emptiness fills my heart. What a way to start a song. In Your Eyes is this searching, yearning song. It's about a quest for love and completion. It conjures these huge, universal feelings while leaving the specifics open to interpretation. It could be about a quest for romantic love or familial love or spiritual love or even some broader, more abstract love, the love of life and existence. It almost becomes more of a chant or testimony at times, particularly when Gabriel performs it live. And these opening lines set the mood immediately. Just the amount of space in this opening melody, the amount of space between that first word, love, and the idea that follows it, I get so lost sometimes. Love. I get so lost sometimes. I mean, come on, there are worlds contained in the space between the first and second words of this song. Love. I get so lost sometimes. Even this melody moving around between a resolute B, very comfortable in Peter Gabriel's range, up to this pushier, more demanding F sharp on I Get So Lost, it's conversational and introspective in terms of how it's paced, but it jumps between emotions and leaves so much space between each lyric. The listener just spends all this time pondering what it all means and what could be coming next. The next two phrases expand the range of the melody, climbing up to a high A in this lovely head voice. Right up until that final line, it's such a lost, uncertain opening verse. Hesitation is built into the melody and the rhythms. When I want to run away, he sings floating upward, drifting off into an airily sung nothing. When I want to run away, I, want to run away, I drive off in my car. But after those uncertain opening lines, the final line of the verse leads to something more certain. But whichever way I go, I come back to the place you are. And just like that, <laughs> All my the song kicks into an entirely new gear for what I'm going to say is one of the greatest pre-choruses ever recorded. So here at the 
pre-chorus, I want to introduce a concept, and it's something that I'm going to come back to throughout season six. It's something I've talked about before, but I'm really going to focus on it this season because I think that it's a cool aspect of music and something that is good to listen for. That concept is the idea of directionality when it comes to composition and songwriting. All music has some kind of directionality, which is to say each chord or note in a sequence of notes in a melody or a chord progression, it moves in a direction relative to the preceding note or chord. A chord progression or a melody, it might move up or it might move down or it might stay put. And I think that it's interesting to work on being able to see those lines as they're happening and to understand the shape of a piece of music as it's entering your ears and igniting within your brain. Now, as it happens, In Your Eyes is somewhat static to me in terms of harmony. It's not dramatically climbing or dropping. It tends to repeat figures over and over in this kind of churn. It's floating and suspended, and that works beautifully with the emotional qualities of the song. But while it doesn't climb and fall dramatically in terms of harmony or melody, it certainly expands and contracts in terms of density. It grows thicker and then thinner, layering more and more parts before pulling back and then coming crashing down. You can picture a trickle of water slowly becoming a gushing stream before pulling back and then gushing again. This pre-chorus is a significant increase in the intensity of that flow compared with the verse that preceded it, and it introduces a bunch of new sounds, timbres, and rhythms acting as a dramatic build, a bridge reaching out toward the revelation of the chorus. It's an incredible feat of composition and music production. All my instincts, they return The grand facade So yeah, let's take it apart. Let's start at the bottom with the drums. So during the verse, the drums were only playing on the hi-hat and the kick drum. There was a little bit of snare on a snare fill, but there wasn't a strong backbeat. In Strong Song's parlance, that means there's a sizzle and a thump, but there was no pop. You can feel that missing pop, right? You can see what an important element it is to have that kind of hit offsetting the downbeats. On the pre-chorus and later on the chorus, Cachet adds a triumphant pop to the groove that completely transforms it. Now, an ordinary backbeat pop on the two and the four, that would sound like this. Now, plenty of songs have a groove like that and sound great, but that is definitely not the groove of In Your Eyes. Instead of doing that, Cachet drops a big, glorious snare hit just a bit earlier than that backbeat. He hits on the fourth sixteenth note of the bar, which is one sixteenth note earlier than the backbeat would be. The result is a syncopated hit that pushes the whole groove up onto its toes and thrusts it forward. He follows that with these tom hits that really emphasize the 16th notes as well. So you've got this groove that's much bouncier than a standard backbeat would be. Add that talking drum and the triangle to flesh it out and you get a much bouncier, more 16th note driven take on the groove from the verse. It's a significant escalation just in terms of how much it makes your body want to move. Not bad, right? All my instincts, 
course, as you can hear, drums and percussion are only a part of the story when it comes to this pre-chorus. Just like the verse before it and the chorus after it, this pre-chorus is bouncing back and forth between two chords. This time it's going back and forth between A major and G major, though that's kind of a G sus major kind of a thing, with a B minor chord as the stopping point between them. It's very similar to the verse, and it reinforces how the song always feels like it's floating. Each section is just batting itself back and forth between two points. So while the snare drum makes a noticeable entrance on this pre-chorus, so too does the bass. And again, I believe there are two bass parts going on here. I think that Tony Levin and Larry Klein are both playing. For simplicity's sake, and just because my ears have their limits, I'm going to focus on the most prominent bass part and just do a single bass recreation, which just very straightforwardly bounces between A and G. Of course, I'd be remiss if I didn't mention the excellent way the bass makes itself known and makes that first entrance. There's a killer dive bomb leading into that first A, and I love a good bass dive bomb. <laughs> I love that anytime I play bass, I find myself doing that a lot. Boom! There's actually a lot of good slipping and sliding on the bass over the course of this song that I'm not going to totally recreate on my end, but it is definitely a lot of the fun of the bass part on this song. So let's add that bass to the drum and percussion parts that we've already done. So nothing too exciting on its own, but it does add that all-important low end to the arrangement. Okay, now let's get into the fun stuff. So two guys played guitar on this track, both of whom I've already introduced. There's Gabriel's longtime guitarist, David Rhodes, and as it turns out, producer Daniel Lenoir also played guitar on this, though he doesn't have a credit in the liner notes. In an interview on producer Rick Beato's YouTube channel, Lenoir says that he actually played the iconic 12-string guitar part on this song, so there you go. I'll link to that interview in the show notes. It's really cool and worth checking out uh, to anybody who thinks that might be interesting. So let's get into these parts, starting with that 12-string part, because it's such an important part of this song. According to Lenoir in that interview, he used an electric 12-string guitar that they had in the studio to record this. Now, a 12-string guitar, it's like a cross between a regular 6-string guitar and a mandolin, where each string is really two strings, so there's twice as many tuning pegs and twice as many strings, even though you can still kind of play it like a 6-string guitar. So because of the way it's set up, each note actually sounds twice, which which gives a thick chorusy effect to each note. Acoustic 12-string guitars are pretty common in folk music. You've doubtless heard one before. They add a nice thickness to strummed chord progressions. Electric 12-strings are a little bit less common. This song's 12-string part is arguably its defining guitar part. It's two slightly different arpeggios that mostly stay put in contrast to the two-chord harmonic back and forth being played by the rest of the band. It starts with that first chord, an A chord, with a nice suspended fourth on top. It goes back and forth between the C sharp and the D, the third and the fourth, which gives it this lovely floating sound. The specific notes here are E, A, C sharp, and D, with those top two notes alternating back and forth. For the second chord, which remember is a G chord, the bottom note drops, the E drops to a D, but the rest of the guitar part stays the same. So it's almost a static guitar part, even while the band is moving between two chords. The second chord also implies this sort of sharp four Lydian sound, an A major over G, which is a central tonal vibe to this pre-chorus, this lovely evocative Lydian 
sound. But the thing to really listen for with this guitar part is the way that it's remaining almost entirely motionless while the rest of the band is moving up and down. Now for my recreation, I do not own a 12-string acoustic guitar, let alone a 12-string electric guitar, so I sort of combined my electric guitar running through a 12-string effect pedal with a sampled 12-string guitar to get something that would kind of suffice for my recreation, though I think it would be very difficult to get this exact sound from this record. It may have just been a unique moment in time. Anyway, here is my version on its own. And now let's add the bass. And hopefully that lets you really hear how static that guitar part is compared with where the rest of the band is moving. All my instincts, they return. The grand facade, so soon. Now there's another guitar part happening here and it's extremely cool. I had never noticed it until I sat down to make this episode and all at once it was the only thing that I could notice. So pan to the left and the right, you can hear David Rhodes on what sounds to me like a Fender Strat just smacking these octaves on an A along with these spanked harmonics that he does every so often. I can't quite get the sound that he gets because I'm just not quite good enough at guitar. There's a certain percussive skill you have to have at smacking the strings in that certain way, but it was very fun to try to get close to what he's doing, so here's my approximation. It's really as much percussion as it is harmonic, so here it is mixed in with the drums and the percussion. It's so cool, even in my less than amazing recreation, it's so cool. This kind of guitar part is what makes songs like this great. These clever, very specific parts that add so much to the overall sound without being super noticeable or distracting about it. That just leaves Peter Gabriel's keyboard parts and synth pads, which play a similar role here to the role they played in the verse. They just feel slightly different because the band has so dramatically transformed around them. The keys are still that odd combination of different electric piano sounds playing big chord voicings through those two chords. And that Kermity synth lily pad is still in there, moving between the same two chords, filling things out. Combined with the bass, the keyboards fill in the spaces between those more vertical, rhythmic guitar and percussion parts. so much going on in this song, and that's before we even get into the vocals, the lyrics, or the melody. So, let's build what we've got so far, and I want you to try to hold your ears open for all of that. Keep hearing that drum part skipping along with that anticipated first snare hit, which combines with the percussion and triangle to make all but the most arrhythmic listener begin to sway in time. Listen to the bass, simple and stalwart on the bottom of the mix, moving between those two chords, along with the keyboards and the synthesizers, which provide a thicker, fuller version of that same broad function. You shouldn't have any trouble hearing that 12-string guitar part, but notice how it remains static. 
even as the band heaves up and back down, providing some interesting harmonic contrast. And notice that second guitar part panned to the left and the right, which adds even more percussive excitement to an already very exciting arrangement. I'll play my recreation and then we'll segue into the original recording. Ears on, deep breath, here we go. Now let's talk about that melody and how it intersects with the lyrics. I hope I've got you thinking about directionality with this song and noticing the way that, for the most part, the band has been levitating, floating back and forth between chords, moving linearly with ever-increasing layered intensity. But lyrically and melodically, something else is going on. The verse was lost and aimless. I get so lost sometimes, Gabriel sings. I get so lost Sometimes. But then at the end of that verse, a return. I come back to the place you are. I come back to the place you are. And so here, after that return, he launches into the pre chorus. The band enters, the energy shifts, and he begins to burn away the false things holding him down and climb towards something truer and more elemental. All my instincts, he sings, they return. The grand facade so soon will burn. And from here, melodically, it begins to climb. Without a noise, and then higher, without my pride, and then to the highest note of all, I reach out from the inside. Listen back to that and think about what he's saying as that melody climbs. His instincts return to him. All the ego, the false selves, they all fall away, and he begins to reach out. All my instincts, they return The grand facade so soon will burn Without a noise, without my pride I'll reach out from the inside It's some incredible directional musical storytelling A lost man climbing from the darkness toward enlightenment And here at the end of the pre-chorus at his highest point Gabriel does the most amazing thing As the narrator reaches out, the music reaches with him Do you get chills when you hear that? Because I do. It is a magical moment. The suspended, held breath, dreamlike vocals blurring onto one another, a trio of extra bars unexpectedly tacked on to the end of the phrase before the bass drops and the song arrives at its destination in your eyes. 
And you can almost see it, a figure floating suspended in the air, reaching up and out so close to grasping what he's reaching for. Gabriel achieves that effect with a number of songwriting techniques. First, there's the harmony. So remember this pre-chorus is going back and forth between an A major and a G major chord. Now this final section does something interesting. It kind of smashes those two chords together and winds up being essentially an A major triad over a G major triad, which is really just a Lydian sound. Now, Lydian has come up before on the show. It'll come up several times this season without getting bogged down in the concept of modes or any of that. I'll just say that Lydian is synonymous with the sound of a major sharp four. So a major chord with a sharp four, a major scale with a sharp four, and that sharp four adds a bit of mysterious, bright, and not always unpleasant dissonance to the sound of a major chord. So here you can kind of stack an A major triad on top of a G major triad, and that gets you the sound. You hear it? So that's the harmony. Then there's the matter of the phrasing. This whole section takes place during a trio of measures that, according to this song's phrasing thus far, quote-unquote, shouldn't be there. Up to this point, In Your Eyes has followed eight-bar sections made up of four-bar melodic phrases. That's very, very common in Western music, to the point that most people just unconsciously expect to hear phrases of that length. Four-bar phrases, eight-bar sections. You don't really think about it. It's kind of just ingrained into what listeners expect from this type of music. So because the song has been following that kind of phrasing, some part of the listener's ear expects the pre-chorus to lead into the chorus like this. <laughs> That's not what happens, of course. Any expectation sets up an opportunity to subvert it, and here Gabriel adds three extra bars to the phrase, which delays the resolution the listener was expecting and beautifully underlines the lyrics, reaching out from the inside. That third bar is really the thing that drives it home for me. Two bars would be plenty, but three just feels luxuriant. He is just so confident in this choice, and I love it. The last thing I want to highlight about this section is textural. The actual soundscape here is dominated by layered, staggered overdubs of Gabriel's voice. At least I'm pretty sure that that's him and only him, though I know there are a couple of backup singers credited on this track, so some of those tracks might be them. I'm guessing they used the Fairlight sampler for this, since it would be an easy way to create this effect on a single track. But however they did it, it is a beautiful and somewhat avant-garde effect. It's the kind of thing that Brian Eno and Kate Bush, both of whom collaborated with Gabriel and producer Daniel Lenoir, were also experimenting with in the 80s. Those vocal dubs add an unusual choral, celestial energy to this pre-chorus, lifting it up to a new spiritual level just as the moment of revelation arrives. chorus hits so hard, it picks you up and carries you away, and I hope that now you have a good sense of why that is. It's because every moment, every note, every phrase and beat of this song has been building toward it. Oh, I see the light and the heat. Oh, I wanna be 
In terms of the band and the arrangement, the chorus doesn't actually change that much from the pre-chorus. The harmony shifts, it's still bouncing between two chords, but now we're in a new key center. A triumphant E major chord bounces down to what sounds to me like A major over C sharp. The drums and percussion stay just about the same, still bouncing along with that anticipated first snare hit. The bass part changes somewhat, adding a nice melody that'll be enjoyably echoed by another musician at the very end of the song. The 12-string guitar shifts to a new pattern over the new key, but keeps the same basic shape and function in the arrangement. And the keys continue their usual role, layered on top of one another, filling in the harmonies as the band churns beneath them. Put them all together and you have something a little less propulsive than the pre-chorus, but as a result, less of a search and more of an arrival. arrangement is really what it's all about here. The backup vocals provided by Michael Bean and Jim Kerr act as a chorus, repeating the song title as Gabriel testifies in the spaces in between. And that's the song, really. An interstitial percussion break allows space for the energy of the chorus to burn off, deflating the narrative and allowing the listener to come back down to where they started so that the second verse can do it all over again, starting with the same word. The second verse does introduce some new musical elements. There's a nice high-pitched element. I think it's percussion, though it almost sounds like a wood flute. It joins the triangle, skipping along on the pulse in the middle of the mix. There's some nice new synth pads here. It's subtle, but it fleshes out the second verse. But soon enough, we're into the pre-chorus. And then building, reaching, stretching into the chorus once more. The second chorus lets the backup singers roll unaccompanied for a bit. The second chorus is also where the arrangement gets kind of jumbly. The drums all start crashing into one another. It's also where it becomes clearest that there are two bass parts, as one of the bass players goes up and starts slipping and sliding around on the neck playing harmonics. It's chaotic and cool. The band builds and builds as they continue to vamp on this chorus chord progression. The arrangement grows even denser as they go, and then seemingly out of nowhere, a new and entirely distinct voice rings out. Right. 
That is, of course, beloved Senegalese singer-songwriter Yusu Ndour, who added his own chorus in Wolof, the language of Senegal, the Gambia, and other parts of West Africa, which my computer tells me roughly translates to My light, my soul, I see you in the bird. It's an incredible ending for the song, punctuated at the last moment by vocalist Ronnie Bright dropping down and echoing that bass line from the chorus. <laughs> right there at the end, it's so remarkable what happens to this song in its closing seconds. It's like it suddenly flexes and shifts and reveals all these new dimensions just before it ends. Of course, the recording might fade out, but it didn't really end there. In Your Eyes would go on to become a staple of Peter Gabriel's live shows, and over time, it would grow and expand into something far grander and more involved than it was when he first wrote and recorded it. Almost 10 years later, on his Secret World tour in 1994, Gabriel would record a version of this song that is utterly transformed. New lyrics, a new arrangement, an entirely new energy, it almost becomes a new song. I mean, listen to this stuff. Everything in the arrangement is expanded and drawn out with the purpose of elaborating the build, more dramatically urging listeners on to the chorus. It climbs and down it falls, building again to a riotous vocal climax. And dropping again to a near whisper as Gabriel testifies yet again. For 11 and a half minutes, the song expands and contracts, somehow increasing its already bottomless capacity for interpretation into the ears and minds of each person in attendance and everyone who would listen afterward. This is what a great song can do. It can bloom and grow, then be replanted and grow again, blossoming from that so relatable yet abstract feeling that it's been expressing from the very start. It's that feeling that we get from music, a sense of deep universality, the certainty that there must be more than just what we see in front of us, that there must be light and strength and meaning somewhere out there. This song shows us what deep down we all already know, that it's out there every moment of every hour of every day, somewhere in your eyes. 
And that'll do it for my analysis of Peter Gabriel's sensational song, In Your Eyes. I really hope you liked this episode because it was such a joy to put it all together. I am so excited for Strong Song Season 6. I've been hard at work on it for a while now, and I think you're all really going to like it. I'm excited anyways. The whole season, including this episode, was made with production support from Emily Williams, who has helped me add so much structure to my process. Her work is apparent in every moment of the entire season, even though you may never hear her speak. Thanks, Emily. Thanks, too, to Tom DJ for the new show art, which is the first time the show has ever gotten new art. I'm very excited about it. Tom rules. You can find more of his amazing art at bossmangraphics.com. Sometimes I think about the fact that I get to make this show and I just feel so grateful. This feels like one of the things that I was put here to do. And while I generally try to avoid that kind of grandiose statement, well... I've been really feeling it lately, so I just wanted to say it, so there it is. Thank you all so much for listening, and to everyone who supports Strong Songs on Patreon, thank you so much. This show takes a lot of work, and I'm grateful that enough of you are able to directly support me working on it that I'm able to keep doing it. If you like Strong Songs, if you're excited for Season 6, and if you want to hear the next episode right now, well, you can go become a patron, and you can get all of that done. Patrons at the quarter note tier and higher get to listen to episodes two weeks early. All right, that'll do it for now. I'll see you all in two weeks for more Strong Songs. Strong Songs.